Homestyle Green, episode 32. Do you have childhood memories of prefab? G'day and welcome to another episode of Homestyle Green. I am your host, Matthew Cutler-Welsh, and I'm a sustainable housing expert. You are someone who wants to help me create my vision of homes that are better for people and homes that are better for the planet. And today's topic is prefab, and I've had the great pleasure of speaking with CEO of Prefab NZ, Pam Bell. I've known Pam for a couple of years, and we've done a bit of work together uh, with Homestar and Prefab NZ, and so it's great to get Pam on the line and talk about some of the success she's had, but also why she does what she does and and uh, the journey that she's been on for the last few years. And... I'm going to pretty much jump straight into the interview because it, it's, um, it's, it goes for about 35 minutes and the I guess the thing that stands out for me is that we need to do something differently with our housing in New Zealand. We've, we've got some big needs both in Christchurch, Auckland and across the country in terms of volume but also in terms of quality and everything about prefab looks good apart from its name. So anyway... Let's explore that further with CEO of Prefab NZ, Pamela Bell. Okay, it's Matthew Cutler-Welsh here from Homestyle Green, and I am very pleased to be talking today with Pam Bell from Prefab New Zealand. Pam, thank you very much for joining us. Can we start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be doing what it is you're doing at the moment? Great, sure. And um, thanks for having me, Matthew. That's lovely. So uh, at the moment, I head up Prefab NZ, which is a non-profit industry organisation, which is helping to inform, educate and network around prefabrication and off-site construction. So essentially, it's the hub for pre-built construction. It's the front door to the community in New Zealand, uh, which is a really uh, great cross-section of architects, designers, engineers, builders, other producers, manufacturers, research and policy and clients. So it's a really great broad cross-section. Yep. Um, and and the way I came to be here uh, after we started this about three years ago is I, um, I did a Master of Architecture looking specifically at prefabricated housing in New Zealand and came out with some industry recommendations which were tested at a workshop early 2010 and we had 140 people come from Kaitaia to Wanaka and unanimously decide that a peak body or a front door to the industry was needed. So a number of people in the room were voted in as a steering group and became the board and we just got trucking from there. Now that that's no uh, small comment there to, to, uh, to gloss over. You had 140 representatives from the building industry uh, in a room that all agreed on one thing. Do you, you you obviously hit on something that was um, that 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 was had started to be built, or was there? Did you know that there was going to be that much interest? Well, most of the people in the room I had been in personal contact with over the previous two years when I did my uh, masters on prefab housing. And what was really interesting in that two-year process is that it was mainly first-hand research that I was doing, which was, of course, the most interesting. 
when I actually got to go into uh, factories and talk with people and um, unwind and find out some interesting stories. There's not, um, in fact, there was barely any documentation about prefabrication in New Zealand that hasn't been recorded particularly well. So, um, and of course, it was a great privilege and that to record. And su- that's surprising, isn't it, given the history that we have with prefabrication? Well, it, it is surprising. Prefabrication is really broad, and I don't know that it has been uh, put under one umbrella quite as broadly as what we're doing now because, of course, it's from component to panel to module, hybrid to complete mm. building. I think people are familiar with the transportable home. Mm. And actually, um, last year, 2012, the Heavy Haulage Association put out its first book uh, documenting the history of transportable housing. And that's an amazing thick book, um, really worth looking at. And uh, so we're just starting to see these types of stories being recorded, which is fantastic. And you make a reference in, in your, your book, and which we'll talk about later, and your roadmap to not only the schoolhouses that most Kiwis would be familiar with, but right back to the treaty house at Waitangi. Yes, absolutely. Certainly when we start thinking about perceptions of prefabrication and that being the number one challenge that uh, the prefab industry faces, it's because of the school buildings that most of us grew up in. And it's fair enough to say that they were cheap, flimsy, temporary, but they were built for that particular purpose and they've only uh, been given a bad tainting, I guess, because they were used past their use-by date, if you like. Right. Temporary prefab buildings that have actually withstood the test of time have given us those lasting impressions. Um, And we can go back really a long way, um, you know, at least before colonisation in this country. In the 1830s, settlers brought out timber kitset houses from the UK. Uh, Many of them were the Manning Portable Cottage. And certainly that's where uh, a number of institutions overseas point at as the beginning of prefab, as the Manning Portable Cottage that came to New Zealand and Australia. But of course, we'd like to think that we were doing it a bit before then. And if you look to pre-1800s, Māori were bundling raupo um, into panels at the edge of the wetland. So anything that is made into a building component before reaching the building site is technically prefabrication. It's certainly um, a nice picture <laughs> that it brings up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and that addresses, uh, I guess, a few questions for people about what, what prefabrication is and would suggest that quite a lot of what comes to a building site, a modern building site today, would be classed as prefab. Certainly a lot of components do go into building and definitely 95% of new build housing contains pre-nailed roof trusses and wall frames and they are Mm prefabricated. So, and that is the norm. So our traditional construction contains prefabricated elements or components. Mm -hmm. So I guess the area that interests Prefab NZ so much is what is holding us back from turning those components into panels, closed in panels. If you look at the Swedish construction system, it is the norm to use panelised construction and a house is essentially constructed in two days at site, closed in for the interior 
um, for, for fittings and fit out happen. So in that case, that's where IP has been shared across the whole industry and everyone's built in the same way, which is essentially what we're doing here, but just with pre-nail. So it, there are some interesting implications to think what would happen if we were all using panelised construction. In your roadmap, you make reference to the fact that prefabrication offers the opportunity to increase speed, increase quality, reduce waste and reduce cost. What's not to like about prefabrication? Well, I, I know. I mean, really, I'm convinced. <laughs> uh, so, certainly the research, yeah, this research points to high quality as the number one benefit. So that's the, that's what we're really trying to reshape people's ideas around. I mean, once you understand it, you know, there really seems to be no going back. It's just a matter, obviously, um, of having enough critical mass to uh, help the industry embrace other ways of doing building. And specifically, what do you mean by quality? So once you take an item inside, you can control the quality. I mean, New Zealand, is, as much as it is paradise, it's um, it's not sunny every day. It's not dry every day. As soon as you take something out into the weather, you're compromising it. I don't think we really need to explain our weather type issues. But as soon as you go indoors, you can control your junctions, your tolerances, your joints that much more. You can get a more airtight building, which helps with life cycle um, energy use. And um, then you can also, uh, I mean, there's so many advantages around quality, worker safety, um, tools, security. All, I mean, I mean, who wouldn't want to go to work in a warm, clean, dry environment um, versus the mud and guts of a building site? So, just to be clear, when you when you say going taking things indoors, you're talking about building a building inside of a much bigger building. So, basically, having a, a house factory, or, or parts of buildings. You know, pre-nailed. Um, as soon as we start using more digital control, file to factory manufacture, and this is what we're seeing, we can't have these machines out in the open air. So pre-nailed component machines and a lot more digital fabrication, um, these are all happening indoors. But we're not just talking about whole houses being built indoors, and we're certainly not talking about spitting out a monotonous box off the end of an assembly line. We're just talking about making uh, the panels or... Uh, the utility rooms, which might have an aspect of standardisation, um, we can control the finished product much more. And of course, with a prototype, you can build one, completely make it perfect, sign it off before you go into replicating it. Mm, mm. Uh, so you that's that you design approach. You mentioned, sorry, you mentioned a term there, was it file to factory? Is, is anyone doing that at the moment? Yes, we're definitely seeing a lot more experimentation in uh, digital fabrication uh, or, you know, CNC, computer numerically controlled cutting and that type of thing. Um, it's certainly happening in our joinery industries. It's happening in some aspects of the arts and crafts kind of decoration. Um, I'm thinking of the panels that are in the Massey University College of Creative Arts building. And we're seeing more and more precision uh, machinery there's, we've got cross-laminated panels um, coming out of Nelson and there are other compressed timber products coming out of JNL up in Kaitaia and Metropanel in Huntley 
And these are all fabricated using um, CNC routers. So they're completely exact. And there's some nice uh, waste capture around these panel products where you cut out a door shape and that door, that becomes the door leaf. Um, any shapes that are cut out of windows then become shelves. I mean, there's a really minimised waste there. And of course, anything that's made indoors, it's that much easier to capture the waste and reuse or recycle. And the amount of planning that goes into a prefabrication project is usually loaded much further at the beginning. Um, and so you're more likely to be able to make use of standard material sizes. Right. This all, it, it all sounds like some pretty high-tech stuff, which is, a, I guess, a far cry from what people have in come, comes to mind when they, when they hear the term prefab, if they're thinking back to those, um, those classrooms. Sure, and, and that's why uh, some areas of the east coast of the States and in the UK, they've decided to use a new term instead um, of off-site construction right. or MMC, Modern Methods of Construction, and various other terms like that. Certainly, we went through the same conversation back here where we just really pulled a bunch of our architecture books off our shelves and said, look, they're all saying prefab. So let's go about um, revitalizing a word that we're already familiar with rather than starting from scratch with a new one. And you probably were aware of some of the implications and challenges that that might present uh, as well? Oh, absolutely. Just like the number one documented and researched advantage is high quality the number one disadvantage is the perceptions right it's um you know it's just the stage that we're at but you know some very smart people in history like Buckminster Fuller um you know said there's a 50-year time lag between technology and a social uptake in the construction industry so uh I would say our timing's about right a bit of a tipping point <laughs> and understanding yeah 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 and that's interesting because it, it sounds like this is not a technical challenge, but it's a marketing one. Well, it, strangely enough, it, it is a socially social acceptance and it is a bit of a change management issue. Mm. Certainly the techniques have existed for some time and we're not talking about reinventing the wheel, but the most provocative part of it is asking people to do something differently. Mm. It's mm. fascinating. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because the so that that's sorry. You go. Well, I was going to say, come uh, just coming back to those benefits. They they just do sound so timely. Uh, you you briefly mentioned leaky buildings, um, and the fact that you can create a weathertight shell and do it with speed, uh, re- reducing the waste, which you know construction waste is a huge issue. But the um, the, the affordability is huge. I mean, that's one of the, the, the biggest problems that I see. Um, so you guys kind of left, oh, well, I'm left scratching my head, so why aren't more people um, doing this? And I guess the answer that comes to my mind is inertia of the current market and just being used to the way we're doing that we've always done things. Yes, it certainly seems to me that the industry deals with projects on a very piecemeal basis. Mm. And, of course, the majority of construction work is residential. The majority is performed by small, medium enterprise, and the majority of those firms are a one-person band, completing one, maybe two houses a year. So 
it's a massive job to reach that long tail of people producing that work. Uh, it would certainly, you know, if we if the industry was structured into, you know, just a dozen or so larger firms, then obviously it would be a different kettle of fish. They'd all be scrambling over each other to keep up and be playing forward. I just think if people are not considering increasing the level of prefabrication, then we really face some serious future-proofing risks. Yeah. Um, if we don't consider it, then another country will. And I've just come back uh, on the weekend from a week in China, and um, you know everyone else will accelerate very quickly to where we are and then take overtake us. Um, it's fairly obvious that's what's going to happen. So we really have to have a smart strategy and wide industry buy-in. And we also need to be led by the people with the checkbooks as well, the decision makers um, who can a red light, um, sorry, who can who can green light rather, who can let these projects proceed. I mean, a lot is hinging on them. But I guess uh, we'll start to see a bit more experimentation, a bit more prototyping, and if the industry works really hard to make that uh, be exemplary, then I think uh, we're going to see a lot more change in the next 12 to 24 months. Right. And I'm pleased you brought up um, the Chinese example because uh, I was going to ask you about the overseas um, perspective and, and where New Zealand sits. You, you seem to suggest that we're, we're kind of lagging behind the times a little bit there. Um, I, yeah, I wouldn't say that we are lagging behind the times. I would say we're fairly similar to what's happening in the UK, Australia, the States in terms of our technical ability. Right. Obviously, we don't have anywhere near the scale of any of those countries, and that's mm. where they are really well in front. But technically, you know, Australia um, only just completed their first student accommodation projects, you know, a multi-unit repetitive um, project. They did a couple, I think, a year or so ago, and we've already got one in Auckland that uh, Stanley Group did with 468 bedsit modules. Yeah. So I think tech, we're on par. Obviously, Australia's got a fantastic resources sector. America's got a very um, well-entrenched modular housing and manufactured housing or trailer housing um, industries. And um, and the UK has got quite a bit of experimentation in their social housing. They mandated a few years ago that I think it was about a quarter had to use modern methods of construction. I think it's Europe, really, that's in front, though. I mean, they have been doing prefabrication for a long time. They've been using cross-laminated timber and structurally insulated panels, you know, CLT and SIPs, for over 50 years. They've got prefab housing parks where you can go and visit over 100 different kinds of houses side by side. And in Germany and Austria and in a number of these countries, prefabricated high-quality product is a medium to upper level type of housing. Right. So uh, people pay a premium, something mm. that's been well researched and tested and where they can have a hand in seeing that research. Also, Japan has that market as well. They have um, about five of their leading uh, prefabricated home providers, uh, the likes of Toyota and Panasonic and Sekisui House, and they're providing to the upper end of the market. So that's really interesting. So. That is quite uh, a fascinating vision to think of a Toyota house. Yeah, well, they've uh, made it into 
not all, Toyota or Sekisui, one or the other, have made it into Australia. So yeah, they're, right. they're really uh, around the corner. Yeah. Hey, look, I, I want to ask you about some of the successes that you have had in New Zealand because uh, you know so the, some of them are similar to um, uh, the, the types of innovation parks that you just mentioned. But before we get onto that, I want to step back a little bit and ask you personally, what, what is it that motivates you? Oh, okay, great. I've come from an architecture background, so I did a uh, bachelor and master's, and I am very personally inspired by the idea of affordable architecture. So prefabrication is a way of making design uh, repetitive and at a price that is affordable for a wider range of people. So as the uh, Eames said, kind of more for more people for less. Mm -hmm. So that's really what personally inspires me. And also um, it's at that juxtaposition where design and business meet that I think interesting things happen. And by looking at prefab through the ages, it's only when the business case, the marketing, the finances were equally met by the design, the technology, that then they've been successful in a commercial way. Mm -hmm. So I think um, it's a real balancing act and, and I guess it's that complexity that makes it such an interesting area. You were probably a little bit before your time, I, I would think, given that you've you've been on this journey for a few years, uh, going right back to starting your master's. Uh, now it's a hot topic, the, the issue of housing affordability. What was it that made you interested, as an architect, what was it made that made you interested in that in the first place? I've been... Fascinated uh, right from architecture school when anyone who went to architecture school with me would laugh and they would have foreseen this pretty pretty early on. I've always been interested in uh, the marketing aspect of architecture and how architecture speaks to its public, how it communicates uh, with its clients. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in some respects, I think high architecture has not done a great job of that. Mm. Prefabrication enables a language that people can understand and it's more accessible, more approachable and um, wouldn't it be nice if we could increase our architect design houses to be more than 5% of the landscape. So prefab is one tool to help that happen. And there's been some huge interest in prefabrication throughout the ages, you know, around the World War, um, post-World War II, there was a huge lot of interest um, with huge housing shortages and large need. There's been increased interest. And here, of course, when we did our um, hydro scheme projects, um, the, going back further, the railway housing, even the state housing scheme had some penalised aspects to it for a yeah. while there, using turned um, World War II servicemen. So um, internationally, prefabrication has uh, come and gone in consciousness. And I guess it has been according to um, housing demand yeah, right. historically. Yeah. yeah, And I think you'll find that most architects that understand prefabrication will have um, some little prefab um, idea that they've been tinkering away with in their the bottom drawer yeah. or file away yeah, somewhere yeah. safely. Uh, you know, there's a universal interest. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a very interesting commentary on, um, on, on uh, architecture and the architecture industry and 
I've I've heard that um, quoted a few times that only five percent of the New Zealand housing stock actually gets seen by a, an architect. Um, mm. I think there's, there's there's probably some bigger issues in there for a, a different uh, discussion. Um, so let's talk about um, some of the things that that prefab or well, some of the many things actually that prefab NZ has managed to achieve in um, what what is it three years now that uh, you've been incorporated? Yeah. Yeah, three years. So we were incorporated July 2010 and in September the first Canterbury earthquake struck. So uh, a show housing village was on our kind of 10 or 20 year horizon, Yeah. but it suddenly became um, an immediate and urgent need, especially after the uh, February uh, 2011 quake mm-hmm. when the Department of Building and Housing started going down their path of getting temporary prefab villages um, underway. So um, it became obvious that that prefab was going to be tarred with the temporary brush again. So we set about uh, setting up a a show housing village to showcase a number of different houses side by side that were permanent, of course, well-engineered, beautifully designed, sustainable, affordable, you know, obviously... um, having varying strengths in each of those areas, but trying to show a cross-section across all of those. And we were worked closely with the City Council for a piece of land on the edge of the Canterbury Agricultural Park, or the AMP Showgrounds, yep. received a lease for two years, and set about from there, I think we opened uh, April 2012 with about four houses and one show building, and a year on, we just celebrated um, April um, last month was, I think we have nine buildings there now, and of course a very wide range uh, from a Homestar 4 through to a Homestar 8, I think it is. Yeah, one of the the first in the country. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, it's a great honour to work with um, a number of industry partners, and it's been great to see the enthusiasm of a number of these housing teams. Essentially, Prefab NZ set this up as an impartial place and it's up to the housing teams to really pull out the best uh, housing uh, prefab example that they can. And it's been really good to see some new collaborations come out of the works. A number of high-end architects have worked with housing manufacturers to deliver an entirely new type of house, and that's that affordable architecture mm. that I spoke about. Yeah, Architects has worked with Keith Hay Homes on a beautiful uh, house that uh, I think it retails around 300 and Lang Homes has worked closely with Wilson and Hill Architecture on a house that I think it's around 220, 240 and that's won an Architecture, National Architecture Award. So um, there's really some very successful design results as so, well as anything else. So those are sort of getting the, the best of both worlds where you're getting the high-end architecture from an aesthetic and a quality point of view but uh, in a process that allows it to be produced at an affordable rate. Is, is that sort of um, the objective? That's right. Exactly. Um, because, of course, most um, architect design houses are bespoke, custom, one-off, so you're starting from scratch every time. Yeah. So it's like the hawk cure rather than the chain store yeah. model, which yeah, yeah. is mouse model. But you could you could probably live with that. I mean, we live, we um, there's some interesting kind of cultural discussions you could have there about why we're so hell-bent on individualisation in our yes. homes. And, um, of course, we can decorate the uh, 
hegemonies out of them. We can do all kinds of things to make them our own. Um, so why is it that we have to start from scratch? I'm certainly not um, not saying we don't need architects because we do, absolutely. But there is a segment of the market that at the moment has only got the choice of, for example, a brick and tile in a subdivision. And particularly in Christchurch, we would love to um, let people know that they have got other options. So essentially, it's really to let people know that um, if they want good design at an affordable price, it is possible to get it through these types of houses. I think it's, it's uh, just another. I, I think um, module modularization is. I don't know if that's a word, but the the modular <laughs> style of the designs offers an opportunity for that customization, but we're utilizing a. Um, a sort of a standard design because there are at least two of those or maybe even more of those examples at the Hive that are based on a um, sort of modular design, sort of building blocks, aren't they? So you can add add bits yeah. um, to make the house grow essentially with the, with the um, household. For sure. Each of the houses that are there are examples of what is usually a large range of options. And of course, it depends on its specific site where it ends up about what else you might want to attach. But certainly the idea of your house growing as you grow or as your circumstances change, I think there's a lot of validity in that idea. Mm. And even the idea, um, what well, might be a bit of a stretch to think of the house as a product and you take something with you when you leave. But certainly the idea that um, we don't have to have everything up front and uh, there are some affordability notions around that, of course, in terms of the starter home and yeah. um, incrementally affording bits and pieces. So there's heaps of information there at the, the Hive. Where do people find it and when is it open if people want to head along and have a look? Sure. Well, Hive stands for Home Innovation Village and we have um, a Hive tab in our prefabnz.com website. Or else you can go directly to it through homeinnovation.co.nz and there's information about how to get there and information about all the houses and that kind of thing. And at the moment, um, all the houses um, are staffed on the weekends, 12 to 4, and a number of the houses are staffed at other times as well. So um, anyone can go outside those times and have a walk around, um, but if you want to have a look inside them, then um, we recommend coming through either on the weekend or getting in touch with one of the houses so you can have a visit. Great. Now, a couple of other things I want to mention um, really quickly. You've got a uh, a book um, that's been that's come out in the last year. I think it uh, was released. Do you want to mm-hmm. quickly tell us about that? Yeah, sure thing. Um, when I finished uh, my master's. Um, uh, end of 2009 um, I worked with my supervisor Mark Southcombe at Victoria University to approach a number of museums and galleries around the country to turn the ideas into an exhibition and um, after several months we came into contact with Puki Araki in New Plymouth, Taranaki and they their program is led by uh, Gerard Beckingsale who is a product designer and he understood the prefab concept and so we started developing an exhibition yep. with them and um, that took a couple of years and was a really interesting process and so we ended up with Kiwi Prefab Cottage to Cutting Edge 
So that exhibition ran at um, Pukiaraki uh, from uh, December last year for four months over the summer period. And it had kind of a past, present, future overview inside, you know, full-scale mock-ups, models, drawings, um, videos, all kinds of interactive bits and pieces, right down to building blocks for the babies. Yeah. And um, inside we had four full-scale houses, which captured um, a lot of attention because it was right on the foreshore um, in sunny New Plymouth, right by the Len Live sculpture there. Yeah. So I think for the four months, they had close to 50,000 people come through. Wow. And a lot of them went through the full-scale houses. Yeah, it was amazing. So um, to time with that, we also did a book by the same name. So it tied in with the exhibition. So that's called Kiwi Prefab, Cottage to Cutting Edge. And that was published by Alto Books. So um, John Balasoglu of Alto Books. So, and um, obviously, obviously, should be on the, the bookshelf of all architects. Where where can people get a copy of if they if they'd like one? Yeah, so um, they're at um, stores, I think, book calls and Unity Books and things like that. But they're also through John's website, Alto Books, and he um, he has access to a huge number of fabulous architecture books. Right. But yeah, it's a good one. It's good to uh, document New Zealand's history for the first time. So it's a good first step and. Um, Hopefully, we'll see some other prefab books coming out of New Zealand couple in the of next wee while. Big, big couple of steps, I'd say. You're setting up a, 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 a village in Christchurch, publishing a book uh, and a full, an full exhibition. exhibition. That's quite a busy few years. We haven't mentioned the fact that yeah. you're, you're, of course, a, a mum as well and, and various other things going on. Um, What's, yeah, yeah, twelve uh, what, nearly killed. <laughs> what's the uh, what, what's on the cards next? What have you got going on at the moment? Oh well, I've discovered this amazing thing called reading. So right. my big indulgence at the moment is getting to bed early enough that I can read before I fall asleep. So that's pretty cool. Um, so what's on the cards in terms of prefab NZ is Hive in Auckland. We're talking with the council and a number of stakeholders up there about a permanent housing village that showcases medium density options. And um, certainly we think, you know, this is the next logical step and it would make a lot of sense in Christchurch as well, but seeing as the focus seems to be politically on Auckland at the moment, we think that's the next place um, that we can help show people that medium density can be high quality, Mm. sustainable, well-designed, and not frightening. So it's the whole perceptions game again. Only, of course, we're looking at delivering um, these particular buildings through panels and modules and prefabricated means. Yeah. So um, we're hoping to showcase a range of different medium density typologies on one site and uh, people can live in them and there'll be a show home, uh, one of the units open on weekends. So it can show row houses, um, mini houses on mini sections, um, say two or three storey kind of walk-ups with roof gardens. So it'd be nice to showcase a number of different um, typologies because there seems to be some media hyperbole around the idea of essentially what's high-density kind of Hong Kong-style apartment buildings, which I don't believe is the intention of either the unit Absolutely. Yeah. And so when are you planning on uh, having that open? 
Well, we are still in the very early kind of stakeholder engagement process and um, I can see it as possible that this might be a slightly slower set-up time than the Hive experience in Christchurch. So I would hope that we would have identified uh, the site and have the project really well broadcast um, and understood in the next six months. Right. Okay. And presumably uh, people can get in touch with you if they're interested to find out more about that. Oh, absolutely. Um, as, as soon as we have a well-documented plan, we'll be going out to our pre and membership and um, and hoping uh, also going through our newsletter database. I think we have a couple of thousand people that um, receive our monthly pre and news, which mm. is um, free to sign up on our homepage. Great. Now, just before we uh, we finish up, uh, Pam, do you have a favorite? You mentioned reading. Do you have a favorite book that you could recommend to listeners? Well, I have. Um, I've read a few prefabby type books, and I know that it doesn't need to be a prefab book, but um, there is a really interesting book that uh, James Kerr and Stephen Timberlake wrote called Prefabricating Architecture, uh, right. which loosely looks the role of the architect and versus the role of manufacturing in a ship aeroplane and a automobile manufacture. And there's a really great inspiring book uh, by Bruce Mao and the Institute Without Boundaries called Massive Change, which I think, I mean, there are a lot of fantastic environmental books with strong imagery, but uh, this one really points to the role of design uh, and the role it has to play in our changing environment. Yep. Great. I will link those both up in the um, blog and show notes for this episode. And, of course, we'll make sure we've got a link in there to uh, Cottage to Cutting Edge as well to make sure people can get get, um, hold of that. Just finally, Pam, um, you mentioned your website. Um, Do you want to just um, tell us again where people can go to find out more about Prefab? NZ or where they can sure. um, get in touch if they want to. Yeah, sure thing. Um, well, Prefab NZ has a website, prefabnz.com, and it's free to sign up to um, our newsletter. There's a directory there that you can search and find out um, other people who are involved with Prefab. Um, you can find out about membership, um, and we run events. Um, every few months we run an event. We ran our first national conference in March, um, and had five international speakers, which was great. So, um, yeah, feel free to touch base and see what's going on or just get in touch. We're always interested to learn about what everyone's up to. Great. Hey, well, thank you very much for your time, Pam. Really appreciate that. I know you're very busy. You've got a lot of things going on. So um, thanks for talking to us today and uh, look forward to seeing more success in the future. Great. You're welcome. Thanks, Matthew. Cheers, Pam. And there you go. That was our interview with Pam Bell from Prefab NZ. Hope you enjoyed that. I will link up the, uh, there's quite a few references that Pam made during that interview to books and other websites. And I'll make sure that there are links all to those. Um, key points that I took out from that interview is that Prefab is something that we are doing now to some extent. And it's something that we've always been doing as well. So it's not something to be scared of. Uh, the second point that I that I took out of it is that there obviously are some negative beliefs about prefab buildings, and that is probably unfair 
of the building methodology itself, but more a it's more a fact of the fact that those buildings and typically we we think of uh, cheap classrooms that they were used beyond their use by date, and that has a, had unfortunate connotations to this concept of of prefab building. So finally, with so much benefit that prefabrication has to offer in terms of quality, speed, uh, reducing cost, reducing waste, just being able to produce better better homes quicker, then you know, really what is the challenge? And it turns out, uh, like a lot of other things in this industry, that it's not a technical challenge. It's more of a social and a marketing change. And as Pam points out, those types of mass changes can take up to 50 years to really take hold. So is the timing right for prefab? Well, I think it's heading that way. I'd be interested in your thoughts. As always, love to hear from you. Comments at homestylegreen.com. Love to get your questions. Got some great interviews coming up um, with a guy down in Christchurch who's been taking a sabbatical and doing a bunch of research on the ideal New Zealand home. Also got a ton of interest about prefab, so going to be talking to another builder very shortly who specialises in producing um, passive house buildings in New Zealand. So love to get any questions and thank you very much for all the comments on the blog and uh, feel free to leave comments either on blog or on Facebook or wherever else that you can find Homestyle Green. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Matthew Cutler-Welsh and we'll talk to you again next week. 